Though all the western quarter of the sky was night black and spangled yet with stars, the dawn was graying slowly in the east when Tybee roused me. They have not come for you as yet, he said, so I took time by the forelock and passed the word for breakfast. It heartens a man to eat a bite and drink a cup of wine just on the battle's edge. Will you sit and let me serve you, Captain Ariton? That I will not, said I, adding that I would blithely share the breakfast with him. Whereat he laughed and clipped my hand, and swore I was a true soldier, and a brave gentleman to boot. So we sat and hobnobbed at the table, and Tybee lighted all the remnant candle ends, and broached the wine, and pledged me in a bumper before we fell to upon the cold haunch of venison. My summons came when we had shared the heel-tap of the bottle. It was my toast to this kind-hearted youngster, and we drained it standing what time the stair gave back the tread of marching men. Tybee crashed his glass upon the floor and wrung my hand across the table. Goodbye, my captain, they have come. God damn me, sir, I'll swear they might do worse than let you go, for all your spying. You've carried off this matter with the lady as a gentleman should, and whilst I live, she shall not lack a friend. If you have any word to leave for her. I shook my head. No, said I, then, on second thought, and yet there is a word. You saw how I must see the matter through to shield the lady? Surely, twas plain enough for any one to see. Then I shall die the easier if you will undertake to make it plain to Richard Jennifer. He must be made to know that I supplanted him only in a formal way, and that to save the lady's honor. The lieutenant promised heartily, and as he spoke, the oaken bar was lifted and my reprieve was at an end. Having the thing to dispatch before they broke their fast, my soldier hangman marched me off without ado. The house and all within it seemed yet asleep, but out of doors the legion vanguard was astir, and newly kindled camp fires smoked and blazed among the trees. In shortest space we left these signs of life behind, and I began to think toward the end. Tis curious how sweet this troubled life of ours becomes when that day wakes wherein it must be shuffled off. As a soldier must, I thought I had held life lightly enough, nay, this I know, I had often worn it upon my sleeve in battle. But now, when I was marching forth to this cold-blooded end without the battle chance to make it welcome, all nature cried aloud to me. The dawn was not unlike that other dawn a month past when I had ridden down the river road with Jennifer, a morning fair and fine, its cup abrim and running over with the wine of life. I thought the cool, moist air had never seemed so sweet and fragrant, that nature's garb had never seemed so blithe. There was no hint nor sign of death in all the wooded prospect. The birds were singing joyously, the squirrels, scarce alarmed enough to scamper out of sight, sat each upon his bow to chatter at us as we passed. And once, when we were filing through a bosky dell with softest turf to muffle all our treadings, a fox ran out and stood with one uplifted foot, and was as still as any stock or stone until he had the scent of us. A mile beyond the outfields of Appleby Hundred we passed the Legion picket line, and I began to wonder why we went so far wondered and made bold to ask the ensign in command, turning it into a grim jest and saying I mislike to come too weary to my end. The ensign, 
A cursed young popinjay, as little officer cubs are like to be, answered flippantly that the colonel had commuted my sentence, that I was to be shot like a soldier, and that far enough afield so the volleying would not wake the house. So we fared on, and a hundred yards beyond this point of question, and reply came out into an open grove of oaks, then I knew where they had brought me and why. Twas the glade where I had fought my losing battle with the baronet. On its farther confines two horses nibbled rein's length at the grass, with Falconet's trooper-serving man to hold them, and, standing on the very spot where he had thrust me out, my enemy was waiting. Twas all prearranged, for when the ensign had saluted he marched his men a little way apart and drew them up in line with muskets ported. But at a sign from Falconet, two of the men broke ranks and came to strap me helpless with their belts. I smiled at that, and would not miss the chance to jeer. You are a sorry coward, Captain Falconet, as bullies ever are, I said. Would not your sword suffice against a man with empty hands? He passed the taunt in silence, and when the men had left me, said, I have come to speed your parting, Captain Irriton. You are a thick-headed, witless fool, as you have always been, yet since you blundered into serving me, I would not grudge the time to come and thank you. I serve you? I cried. God knows I'd serve you up in collops at the table of your master, the devil, could I but stand before you with a carving tool. He laughed softly. Always vengeful and vindictive, and always because you must ever mess and meddle with other men's concerns, he retorted. And yet I say you've served me. Tell me how, in God's name, that I may not die with that sin unrepented of. Oh, in many small ways, but chiefly in this affair with the little lady of Appleby. Never. I denied. So far as decent speech could compass it, I have ever sought to tell her what a conscienceless villain you are. He laughed again at that. You know women but indifferently, my captain, if you think to breach a love affair by a cannonade of hard words. But I am in no humor to dispute with you. You have lost, and I have won, and, were I not here to come between, you'd look your last upon the things of earth in shortest order, I do assure you. You, you come between? I scoffed. You are all kinds of a knave, Sir Francis, but your worst enemy never accused you of being a fool. There was a look in his eyes that I could never fathom. You are bitter hard, John Irriton bitter and savage and unforgiving. You knew the wild blade of a half-score years ago, and now you'd make the grown man pay Scott and lot for that same youngster's misdeeds. Have you never a touch of human kindliness in you? To know how this affected me you must turn back to that place where I have tried to picture out this man for you. I said he had a gift to turn a woman's head or touch her heart. I should have said that he could use this gift at will on any one. For the moment I forgot his cool disposal of me in the talk with Captain Stewart, forgot how he had lied to make me out a spy, and so had brought me to this pass. So I could only say, you killed my friend, Frank Falconet, and... Tush, said he. That quarrel died nine years ago. Your reviving of it now is but a mask. For what? I asked. 
for your just resentment in sweet Marjorie's behalf. Believe it or not, as you like, but I could love you for that blow you gave me, John Ayrton. I had been losing cursedly at cards that day, and mine host's wine had a dash of usquebaugh in it, I dare swear. At any rate, I knew not what it was I said till Tybee said it over for me. But the next morning you took a cur's advantage of me on this very spot, and ran me through, I countered. Name it what you will and let it go at that. There was murder in your eye, and you are the better swordsman. You put me upon it for my life, and when you gave me leave, I did not kill you, as I might. No, you reserved me for this. He took a step nearer, and seemed strangely agitated. You forced my hand, John Irriton, he said, speaking low that the others might not hear. You had her ear from day to day, and used your privilege against me. As an enemy who merely sought my life for vengeance's sake I could spare you, but as a rival. I laughed and sanity began to come again. Make an end of it, I said. I'd rather hear the muskets speak than you. For reply he took a folded paper from his pocket and spread and held it so that I might read. It was a letter from my Lord Cornwallis, directing Captain Falconet to send his prisoner, Captain John Ayrton, sometime lieutenant in the Royal Scots Blues, under guard to his lordship's headquarters in South Carolina. Can you read it? he asked. I nodded. Well, this supersedes the colonel's sentence. If I say the word to ensign for Caharson you will be remanded. To be shot or hanged a little later, I suppose. No. Have you any notion why my lord Charles is sending for you? No, said I in my turn, and indeed I had not. He knows your record as an officer and would give you a chance to. List in your old service. I would not take it at your hands or his. You'd best take it. But in any event, you'll have your life and honorable safe conduct beyond the lines. Make an end, I said again. I understand you will obey his lordship's order, or disregard it, as your own interest directs. What would you have me do? A very little thing to weigh against a life. Mr. Gilbert Stair is my very good friend. I let that go uncontradicted. His title to the estate is secure enough, as you know, but you can make it better, he went on. This saying of his told me what I had only guessed, that as yet he had not been admitted into Gilbert Stair's full confidence, also, that he had no hint of what had taken place in my chamber some hour or two past midnight. At that, a joy fierce like pain came to thrill me. Go on, said I. Your route to Camden lies through Charlotte. Your guard will give you time and opportunity to execute a quick claim in Mr. Stair's favor.